This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Dirty Days, A Young Girl's Journey to and from the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. And the author is Norma Welty, and Norma joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Norma. Hello, Steve. So good to have you with us. Well, nice to speak with you, too. This is your story. It's fictionalized, but based on uh, real facts, uh, real history in your life. The terrible days of those depression and dust bowls of Oklahoma. Here's what you say about it. Let me read a few things that you have written. You say, The Dirty Days is a fictional memoir of a young girl growing up dirt poor on the dusty plains of Oklahoma during the Great Depression. While the characters and the events are fictionalized, they're based on real people and their very real struggles with poverty, drought, dust storms, and disaster. We should read our history because a lot of those days seem to be starting to reoccur again. We'll, we'll talk more about that, but let's learn a little bit more about you, Norma, and why you decided to write the book. I sometimes get Molly and me mixed <laughs> up. <laughs> From the time I begin the book, which is not very long, not terribly long, before I'm to turn seven, then it would be less than 10 years. Actually, I began my story when I was nearly seven years old, in Arkansas, and we're about to leave there and go to Oklahoma, but this is in 1933. In my real life, I don't believe my parents would have gone there um, after the stock market crash, but they went there just before the stock market crash. And so that's uh, an example of how I've had to alter things in my book in order for me to be able to write it uh, comfortably for myself. Well, certainly... All of that hitting at the same time was devastating. Now, tell us, let's see, tell us, when you were writing The Dirty Days, uh, what was it like? I mean, what emotionally, this uh, revisiting all of this, which was very traumatic, obviously, at that time? Oh, um, when people congratulated me after a book was written, I'd, I'd tell them that it was an experience of both agony and ecstasy, and uh, the agony was what you just uh, fits right into the question that you just asked. Uh, you know, it was agonizing to just uh, handle the mechanics of getting my best down on the pages, and uh, along with the um, pain of reliving those days. I even wept once in a while when I was writing some of those episodes. And of course, I had to go back and, and tweak them again and again in the process of all my uh, revising. And I always would be choking back some tears while I'd be rewriting them even. Now, the character Molly uh, is the focus along with her family, and they moved from Arkansas to Oklahoma thinking that things were going to get better. And obviously, they got drastically worse. They certainly did. They certainly did. And it didn't help one bit that my daddy was still optimistic. You know, this can't last forever, he would always seem to want to say. Well, that's a, a great character, a characteristic to have, that hope. But at the same time, uh, you went through very, very, very tough times. Tell us about some of those tough times. Um, well, I went hungry quite a bit. Now, I don't think I ever told... Uh, my parents, either one of them, and my mother and I uh, were um, very uh, close and, and, and engaged in a lot of close conversations, but I never told her that I was hungry then or any time after. And uh, incidentally, I got a lot of my uh, information from my mother. She was always in a storytelling mode 
whenever requested. You know, she lived to be almost 94, so she was a great resource for me. But um, back to, uh, to your question, um, I think you're a little bit, and especially when you're young, you're a little bit in a state of utter disbelief that this is happening to you or to your family and or to your family. So you went often, you went without food, uh, water was a key basic need, but that was oh, a problem as well. Oh, yes. You know, we didn't even have enough water to keep ourselves clean and barely enough, to, you know, to cook with and wash the dishes, um, let alone to wash our cars. And, of course, there, there's a lot of um, exposed detail on the uh, outside of the cars in those days, the old Model A Fords, the Model, a, Model T Fords. And so the bumpers and the headlights and windshields and everything were just packed with dirt after a dust storm. But we didn't have any water to wash our cars, and we just kind of you know, take a dry cloth and try to flick off some of the dust and, and drive it, hoping the wind would blow the rest off, which it usually didn't do. It was pretty packed in there. But, um, that would be one example. And uh, we never wanted to waste a drop of water. And uh, uh, <laughs> this may sound sort of disgusting nowadays, but we all washed in the same um, uh, basin of water for meals. And we sort of, uh, you know, we didn't lay it out as a rule, but we just sort of, sort of did this. The cleanest kids got to wash first, and, they, and it went down the line to the dirtiest one be last. <laughs> But it was it was our way to try to do it as sanitarily as we could, I guess. Right. And how many kids in the family at that time? Um, well, uh, from uh, from beginning to the end of the story, there were seven of us all together. Seven. Okay. Seven in the whole family. Five kids, two, mom and dad. Oh, no, seven seven children. Oh, seven children. Oh, yes. okay. All right. Yes. Now. Describe a dust storm. Um, we've seen, you know, maybe we've seen it in the movies. We've seen news reports. Often Arizona gets dust storms. Uh, Mexico gets dust storms. But describe what was what it was like to be in a dust storm. Well, it was it was very dismal even as a child because um, I coughed a lot. I had apparently um, some uh, mild form of of asthma, and so did my father. And um, he and I suffered most from the dust storms, and uh, we coughed a lot, and we got lung infections sometimes, too. And uh, that's one of the things I'm sort of paying for today, is it did do some, um, some uh, damage. And, and my father also had a lot of damage to his lungs, and, and he uh, passed uh, from a respiratory failure because he was... Uh, COPD, you know, had chronic uh, um, uh, pulmonary disease. And uh, I think that the dust storms really, uh, you know, pushed that weakness in us, and, and we've had to pay for it. You hope that readers can learn something from your story about how to handle, you know, even survive grief following a tra tragic loss or experience or other kind of experience. Uh, uh, certainly, you've gone into great detail to help people understand how bad things can get, and yet there's always hope. There is. There's always hope. I, um, I didn't have to talk to my mother to know about that because once I sat down to write... Um, had she still been here when I started, I, I, uh, I wouldn't have needed her for, for, you know, to address that issue because it certainly was um, a very real and, and through all of them, I think, a large bit of fear and wondering if we were going to survive it, if it was going to get worse than we'd ever thought and uh, that one could get, you know. There's no hope unless you're willing to persevere, and of course, uh, you need that kind of resilience, those three uh, characteristics that are portrayed so well in your story. How is your story relevant today? What would you say? We see a lot of news. We've seen about drought in the Midwest. Again, we, of course, our economic 
times are really, really difficult. The economy is kind of falling apart. Uh, does all that kind of point to what happened back then? Um, Steve, you're really hitting the nail pretty squarely there because um, I think what you've stated about what's going on now is, uh, you know, very, very uh, key to why I think my book is relevant and, and interesting uh, to today's readers. And I, I think that um, uh, the, the baby boomers, or they like to be called the boomers these days, um, I think their parents, uh, which would be me, myself, and uh, my peers, uh, and also they've been called the greatest generation, as you already know, uh, our children are interested. And they want, they really seem to be eager to learn about what we went through before all of us passed, and it would be lost forever. Well, history is so important. Often we don't learn from history. Most of us really don't know history, but we don't want to repeat history, but we seem to do that a lot. You're opening up this whole world for us to just give us a glimpse. Thank you for the compliment. That was my purpose. That's what I wanted to do. I, I, I labored on that because... I, you know, there's sometimes a fine line between uh, making uh, the point and uh, and belaboring it. And so I tried to um, uh, give the readers a break and take them into the more carefree times, such as uh, community activities, school activities, and even family activities. It's not all doom and gloom, Steve. Uh, you know, it has its moments of soft humor, you know. And your mother showing her charitable side, never turning away anyone who was in need, even the even the tramps, as they right, were called right. back then, the hobos. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I was witness to that. Uh, I would stay, as mother instructed me, to stay back and don't hover. And but I could watch from inside the kitchen because they usually came around in warmer weather, and uh, the uh, the door was open and the screen door, of course, was closed. But um, uh, she always urged me to stay back while the tramps were waiting for her to prepare something for them to eat. And it was, uh, and I think about it now, uh, how great it was of mother to be able to to present something to them that didn't take uh, anything more than just a few staples, like a little flour and and some water instead of milk in it, and uh, she could spare it a small egg and and some baking powder to make them some flapjacks. And of course, she never uh, poured any syrup over them. She barely dribbled it over them because she wanted to be able to feed her family too and not deprive them. And so she'd figure out how she could, um, you know, help these people out uh, and still take care of her family. Helping when you had so very little yourselves. That's right. That's right. Well, that's uh, the, I guess, one of the golden rules, isn't it? I believe it. I believe it, Right, and I'm sure God blessed you and your family for her charity, uh, even when nothing seemed to look like it was going to work out for the best. Now, how many years did you... I have to go through that, and how many years in your book? Is it the same? No, it isn't, Steve. Um, uh, I actually went through it from uh, before the stock market crashed sometime in 1929. My folks moved there, and then uh, I stayed there until the early 1940s and after high school. Mm. Then I left. I never went back to live, just for visits. So the the book covers a 10-year period. Uh, actually, uh, it only covers the seven years, seven years that I've okay. decided that I would be able to really make into a good book. I didn't think I would be able to um, write a very good book about the years when we first came there, uh, not nearly as well as I could if I were a little older, and uh, it would be just a little easier for me, especially to be a believable, a believable right. narrator, you know. Who would, who would put much stock in what a four-year-old has to say, you know, about it all? I don't know. Maybe they would. But um, I chose to start it 
when I was at a more credible age. Well, as you put it in this historical tale, based on true events, a young girl embarks on a coming-of-age journey where she and her loved ones must fight nobly to survive the Great Depression in the Oklahoma Dust Bowl. What a story, Norma. Tell us, Norma, how to get your book, The Dirty Days. Well, Barnes & Noble are selling it. Um, if they don't have it in stock, uh, they'll order it for you and you can pick it up or or uh, perhaps they ship it to you. I'm not sure if you aren't able to pick it up. And uh, and then uh, you can go online to um, Amazon. Sorry, sorry. There you go, yes. Amazon.com. Just type in the title of the book, where the first chance you get them, and uh, you can order it from there. Norma, well. Norma, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Great story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve, for having me talk about it. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Airdrie's Boys, Fostering as a Family Form, and the author, Airdrie Thompson Guppy. And Airdrie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Airdrie. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us. A great story, true story, about fostering five young boys, and of course, we'll learn the rest of the story as we talk about your book. But let me read a couple things that you have written. You say this, This is a story of five adolescent boys who lived with us for a very short period of time, but who came back to tell their story. The story spans almost 50 years so these boys, uh, all from uh, troubled backgrounds or dysfunctional families, was that the case? That's right. These boys were around 13, 14, 15 years of age. They were not all with us at the same time, but they all came because they were in great difficulty, uh, either with the law or because of family circumstances, and uh, they couldn't remain in their own homes. Now, tell us about your background, Airdrie, and then what led to publishing this book. My background. Well, I'm um, at the time, in 1964, I just had a B.A. in psychology, and I had gone to the Children's Aid Society. I was married, and my husband had a job, but I needed a job, too, and I had a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, 
And I went to the Children's Aid to ask for a job. I thought they'd be glad to um, have me because I'd worked in Montreal and Toronto. But the director said, no, we won't hire you. You go home and look after your baby. Well, I was pretty shocked with that. So much so that I didn't look for another job in Kitchener-Waterloo, two small towns in Ontario, and I just thought that's uh, what they did there. But they did have my resume, so um, a couple of months later, two women visited me and told me that they had some money from an orphanage that had closed, and they wanted to do a pilot project, having a group home for adolescent boys who were in a fair bit of trouble. So when they told me that, I said, well, no, that's not really what I do. But they came back again, and um, I, wa- um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it. But my husband and I discussed it, and we decided, since it was a pilot project and it was for one year, that perhaps we could give it a try, because I did have a fair bit of background in working with children and families. So that's how it started. So this time that you had with these five adolescent boys, uh, you really proved the importance of connection, didn't you? I mean, to be connected to something, to someone, well, in this case, to a family. Yes, I think so. One of the boys was only with us for two weeks, and the seriousness of the event that brought him temporarily to our home led him on to training school, which was like an adolescent jail. So he wasn't with us for very long, but um, there was very little. There was no response from his family. So at Christmas time, um, when the the other uh, boys went home to their families, they asked us if we would take him, and of course we did. Uh, so there were intermittent times um, that we did see him, and then then he lived near us, and and uh, we did see him, and then he went out west, so we didn't see him, but. Uh, when they took him after two weeks with us, I asked them, please don't do this. Leave him with us. Don't send him to training school. But, but they did. And within the first week, he lost his two front teeth. And after that, he learned all the wrong things that you shouldn't do in life. So uh, that really wasn't a good solution. But the other thing that we're learning with um, group homes is that to have them staffed with people on shift work really isn't a family environment. It's just another kind of institution. And so I think the good response to my book is that people are seeing that there really has to be a family for these disturbed kids um, so that they can learn some functioning within those uh, four walls of that house. And your book also is the story that an example of the power of one person. Um, well, I guess so. You know, I was only 24, so there were a lot of things I just kind of did because I did them. I was from a big family myself, and so we incorporated the boys as part of our family, even if they were there for a very short period of time. And I think that's very different from some foster situations. There are many, many, many wonderful foster situations and foster parents, but there are many children who fall between the cracks. And so um, I think that that to give them an experience of being accepted, of having um, boundaries, um, having expectations for them was a whole new experience. And, And some of them told me later that that carried them forward even when they got in trouble. So and you you had to, you and your husband had to accept these boys uh, kind of an unconditional acceptance right where they were at. Well, that's what we did. Because it was a pilot project, there were, there, there, there were no guidelines. They just said, Airdrie, you know, look after these boys. Nobody, nobody um, made recommendations about how we do that. There was one saving grace, though, and that was that every month at the Children's Aid Society, they had a meeting uh, for the staff with a psychiatrist, and they could present a difficult case for discussion. And so for the year that we had our group home, because I had done social work, I was the presenter each month for that year. 
and I think I I think they learned a lot from the experiences I had with the kids. Some some of which were not so easy, but it also helps me through the discussion to go back home and carry on and and understand some of the things that were going on. That kind of consultation isn't usually available to foster parents with very difficult kids. So very often when they get in trouble, then they have to move on to another foster home and they haven't learned from that experience, so they move on to another foster home and um, at 16, they're out on their own and they haven't really learned enough. They haven't haven't learned what scientists call or refer to the social brain. Right, and boundaries in, in society. And, of course, in a family, in a home, there has to be boundaries. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, there's, there's one, one situation with one of the boys where um, I came downstairs one morning and I could see in the living room and, and he took a swipe at my daughter. He didn't hurt her, she didn't cry, but he did it. And I felt, that's not okay in my home. And I discussed it with the psychiatrist who said, no, that's really not okay. He'll have to leave. Now, nobody explained to me what the plan was, where he was going, all the rest of it. But indeed, he went back to his own family. And this was a kid who was very belligerent and he didn't talk very much. But just before he left, I I just spoke to him and said, I'm really sorry that we weren't able to do anything for you. But maybe now that you've lived with another kind of family, maybe you can go home and appreciate your mom and dad and understand why they set rules for you. And whatever else I said 50 years ago, I don't really remember what it was. But it was very interesting because he left and I didn't hear anything about him from the children's aid or anywhere else. And about four years afterwards, after one summer night, after we'd come home from the cottage, there was a knock at the door and there he was. So I welcomed him in, and and we had a glass of lemonade on the porch, and I didn't say a word. He spoke to me for an hour about what he was doing and how he'd finished school, and he had a job, and he had a girlfriend, and life was going well for him. And on and on and on he went, and at the end of the hour, he said, I want to thank you so much for what you Mm. did for me. And even when I tell you that, you know, it brings tears to my eyes. Because what did I do for him, you know? I had the urge to say these few words as he went out the door, but I guess he took them with him. Hmm. And so he thanked me and he left. And I never saw him again. But I just believe in my heart that he went ahead and he did okay in life. My book kind of follows. It's it's, it's the, the path of each of the five boys. So that's as far as I went, as I knew, but I just decided that Mm -hmm. he was okay. Now, three of these five came back to see you in their later years. They did. I think um, that the uh, push of it was that that, um, my husband had died, and and I think they were concerned for me, like the tables were turned. And, uh, you know, I was an old lady, and they were grown men, and they came to see that I was okay and We sat around the dining room table telling stories and sharing interests and just laughed a lot. And they told me things that I didn't know had happened, but I reminded them of, or tried to remind them of things. Of course, they'd forgotten some of the things that they had done, but you can read it in the book. And we had a wonderful time. And and at the end of our visit, you know, they just decided that they thought their story should be told. So I thought, well, I guess we have to tell the story. And I said, but you know, you have to change your names. So they just went around the table and they each picked the name that you see in the book. (laughs) And there was no hesitation. It was like one, two, three. And then when I told my daughter that, you know, they changed their name, she said, well, if they can change their name, I can change my name too. (laughs) So she's Trisha in the book. Yeah, and there's Lefty and Bob and Johnny and Val and Dan. Mm-hmm. Very good. Now, should foster children automatically be adopted? No, I don't believe so. I've done a lot of adoption work, and it, it all depends on their circumstances. If, it's, if, if they're placed 
um, in, in fostering care, um, just to see how they're adjusting and to um, assess why it is they're available for adoption and, and how they're going to manage, then that can be a very nice transition to adoption. So I'm not saying that they shouldn't. I'm saying they shouldn't automatically. And, uh, you know, my boys were older, so there never was any question. And, you know, 13 to 16, you know, they, they weren't uh, in care very long before they were out on their own anyway, joined back with their family or not. And they weren't all joined back with their family. But I think that I think that one of the re- one of the outcomes of this book is to raise the awareness of fostering, because we talk about adoption, we talk about our children, we talk about marriage, but who sits around and talks about fostering? Mm. Not many people, unless they're foster parents. Well, you're so, called a pioneer because uh, this review said we learn about the early days of a system of foster care before it was a system. That's right. Yeah. And, so you, you know, were just uh, doing what you felt, just I guess from the heart. That's right. That's right. And and you know, like um, there are no coincidences, but you know, like it just happened. And and when I started this work, I went back to the Children's Aid Society where this all originated to see if they had any information. And they had some board minutes, but not very much information. But they welcomed the idea of what I was doing because they didn't have any studies of children over a 50-year period and what really happened to them. Mm. So now uh, that that director um, of Children's Aid, which in Canada is now Family and Children's Services, um, I sent her a book to thank her. And she told me, it's not very big. You can read it in an evening. But she went out into her backyard and she read it. And she said she came into the house and she ordered 20 copies for her senior staff. She said, we've been grappling. We know that, that um, if, if we have uh, staff in these group homes, that's not really working for kids because they change shifts and there isn't the continuity. And what you did 50 years ago or 47 years ago is what we're grappling with of how we can do it. So that's kind of interesting that mm. they, well, that is the model that they are looking at now. Another reviewer said the voices of the boys, their troubles, struggles, successes, and true-to-life stories are both heart-wrenching and heartwarming. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all happy. And I'm sure. Some of them had been through terrible, terrible things for their young years. So again, this sense of belonging and the safety that it provides, even a little bit of time, it's, it's remarkable the impact that you had on these young boys. Well, I think that, um, that yes. <laughs> um, you know, I think other people can do this too. Um, but I also think that our agencies are, are underfunded and, and they can't do a lot of the things that they know they should be doing, like having family group homes. And so we need to start thinking about, as a society, how can we support them? How do we fundraise? We fundraise for a million things, but we never fundraise for foster care. So I was hoping that that was one of the things that might come out of this. I didn't think that when I wrote it, but afterwards, when there was discussion, I thought, we need to raise the profile here. We've been listening to Airdrie Thompson-Guppy. She is the author of her book, Airdrie's Boys, Fostering as a Family Form. Airdrie, tell us how to get your book. You can get it through Amazon.com. Is that the same in Canada and the States? I believe it is. Uh huh. Or you can go to www.airdriesboys.com. In Canada, you'll be able to get it at Chapters. And in the States, I think it'll be available at Barnes & Noble. Very good, Airdrie. Thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. I'm happy to have done so. Thank you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten. 
on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you, here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, You Are Here, and the author is Chris Deliani, and Chris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chris. Hi there, Steve. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, I want to read a couple things you've written about your book. You say this, a young painter trying to rebuild his life in San Francisco finds himself the unlikely love object of two very different men. You also say this, it's not a coming out story. It's not about homophobia. Here the characters are more or less out and have been living in the community for years. The conflict in this story comes from within the community. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. This is not your first book, and tell us uh, how this theme, this uh, plot all came about. Well, I started this book a long time ago, actually, in the mid-90s, soon after I moved out to San Francisco for good. And, I mean, what interested me, uh, by by the time that happened, um, you know, I had been out in the community for many years, and what interested me was not so much the conflict. I I never really experienced uh, real homophobia firsthand at that time. Um, but the conflicts that I was sort of noticing were ones that were occurring uh, in the community, you know, between me and other uh, me and other gay people, and other gay people, you know, with each other. And that's kind of what I wanted to explore there. wasn't really interested in writing a coming out story. I wasn't really interested in writing a story about, uh, you know, uh, gay people fighting uh, homophobia. I was kind of just more interested in sort of exploring uh, the sorts of conflicts that occur. Uh, among gay people. Now, tell us about Peter Bankston, a young painter. Why choose him uh, to be a painter? A painter? You know, I sort of, it was almost at random. Uh, the um, At around the same time, I actually uh, took a trip uh, to Paris, to the uh, trip to Paris for a week. I had a uh, little time, and I had a little money, so I, I got a sort of a, a, a cheap trip uh, over there. And it was there I went to the uh, to the Louvre, where you know the Mona Lisa hangs. But there is another painting there that uh, really intrigued me. Um, it's called uh, the Cheat, and it's a it's a it's a poker playing uh, painting, and it's a, it's an amazing painting, and I'd never known it existed before, and I just. I just loved it, and uh, it stayed with me ever since. And I think, and it was around the time I was sort of creating uh, Peter Bankston's character, and I thought, God, wouldn't it be wonderful to, you know, j- to be a painter? Uh, you know, I have no, I have no drawing experience whatsoever. Um, so it sort of coincided with my interest in uh, art and museums and, you know, the, the artistic process. So it, they sort of went hand in hand. 
Now, Peter's having a hard time making a living. He is. San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco is a fabulous place, but uh, unfortunately it is a very expensive one. So if you, you know, realistically, if you're young and you want to move here, move out here for 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 good, um, you know, unless you are, you know, you work for a dot-com or something, uh, you're going to experience some uh, some pretty lean times. I myself did not experience uh, the, the lean times that, that Peter has, I and mean, he's really got nothing. Truly a star- starving artist. And really just wants to be left alone? More or less. Uh, he has a uh, sort of a past uh, that he wants to leave behind, a family past that he just wants to forget about. And all, what, all he really wants to do, certainly when the story begins, is uh, just sort of be in his own cocoon and work on his art and uh, just not be bothered by anybody. What he doesn't realize is that he can't really create art unless he actually gets out into the world. And then he meets Donald. Tell us about Donald Manti. Ma- yeah, Monte Manti. Manti. I, I, you know, uh-huh. I was going for the spelling. An older guy. An older guy. Older guy. Yeah, he is actually sort of a lesser. He's a. He's, he's one of the one of the more minor characters, but he sort of introduces Peter to the big bad world uh, that is San Francisco, and also sort of a. Uh, living example that when it comes to dating and having a first date, uh, you know, it is uh, often uh, often a crapshoot. Sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't get lucky. And in Peter's case, I mean, all I'll say is that he really does not, uh, uh, he draws a losing ticket on, uh, on, that, uh, on that particular date. Now, you also have a theme about bullying in, in your book. I do. Um, well, the, I guess the, the well, bullying has been, I find it a very, it's a very interesting topic. I've been following all the bullying stories. So, you know, it's a hot topic now, and it's one that I follow. Um, what I really wanted to explore in the book uh, in terms of the bullying is, uh, what I really wanted to sort of examine is sort of the bullying that takes place uh, between uh, between gay people, the, pe- you know, the, the things that gay people do to each other to hurt each other, and that is what's being explored there, and not so much you know, being, you know, you know, looking back to when you were in high school and when you were bullied and have that affect the rest of your life. Like, uh, that's what I think about, you know, when I think about when I was growing up in high school, I think about less of when other people were being mean or cruel to me, it's when I was being mean or cruel to somebody else, uh, you know, not, certainly not to the extent that what, you know, you read about in the papers now, but I just think, you know, if I said something or did something that I regret, and that's kind of what I was going for, that's what I was exploring uh, when uh, I wrote about that. And also exploring the power of forgiveness? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important, uh, you know, to, I think it's important uh, not just, uh, for for everybody, you know, when looking back, you think about somebody doing something mean to you, you know, who knows uh, what was going on in their mind, and time has passed, and I think it's important to, it's important for everyone to be able to, you know, sort of forgive it, and let it go, and move on, and at the same time, forgive yourself for the person that you were, as, uh, you know, forgive yourself for what you may have uh, regretted doing in your past. And you did research about San Francisco to kind of bring a lot of life to your novel. Yeah, yeah. The research, I'm not, re- you know, uh, book research, I always uh, admire people who write historical novels because they really have to sit in front of a lot of books and do a lot of reading and do, a, you know, a lot of, uh, in a lot of desk work. Um, I, uh, but I, for, for this book, I didn't have to do that. I mean, the my research was, I did all my research this time with my feet. I uh, went everywhere. There's a scene that takes place in a diner, a very intense scene that takes place in a diner. So I went to diners around the city, just sitting down and listening to conversations and sort of taking in the scene there so I could get all the details down to make that scene vivid. There's a scene, my absolute favorite scene uh, that I did research for, um, was actually occurs towards the end of the book, um, where uh, that takes place at Ocean Beach, which is uh, right on the Ocean Beach is on the the western side of San Francisco. Just sitting on one of the dunes and taking everything in, and just sort of imagining my characters there and having this scene. And then also uh, uh, 
uh, Pride Day 2009, which uh, Pride Day 2009 is an actual event in the book. Um, I was actually there Pride Day 2009 uh, by myself with my notebook, writing everything down. Something like Pride Day, I mean, the, the scene practically writes itself because everything, there's just so much going on. The real challenge there is to try to write it all down, try to get it all down before it's all gone. It's kind of, I guess that's the challenge for any writer, really, try to just try to get it, get it down. And what are the conflicting perspectives about the gay pride parade that happened back in 2009? Well, I mean, actually, the, 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 the different perspectives are very much uh, like in, uh, they're very much my own thoughts uh, as I go to gay pride. I've been going to gay pride parades for a very long time now. It's been my first gay pride parade would have been, I think, Gosh, I think it would have been 1989. So uh, yeah, a whole 20 years before I actually wrote the book. And there's a part, you know, there's a the part of, in, in, you know, the, the the gay pride movement has been going on for such a long time that I think there's a certain complacency going in there, and there's a certain sort of, you know, maybe maybe a little bit of silliness going on there. But ultimately, at root, uh, in in the parade is you know a very important message that still uh, resonates today even if it doesn't have the urgency as it did maybe, you know, in the, in the 70s or early 80s, I think it still uh, matters uh, for everyone to get out there and be counted one way or the other. Or who is another key character in the book? Key characters? Well, there's, uh, well, there's so many. Uh, we have, uh, so there's Peter. There's also Miles. He's sort of the second uh, point in the triangle. He is uh, having uh, trouble getting over a relationship, and in his case, he... Uh, uh, has the door uh, slammed uh, shut in front of him? He was supposed to be. This takes the the, the book takes place at the end of 2008, right after uh, Proposition 8 passed uh, here in California. That is the ban on gay marriage. In his case, he was actually engaged to be married. Uh, breaks up with his fiance. The fiance disappears, and then the election passes. So Miles feels uh, a bit. Uh, uh, left out of the process, left out, well, not out of the process, sort of, you know, he feels like his one opportunity has slipped by him. And, he, you know, he spends uh, much, uh, much of the book uh, just essentially looking for the fiancé, trying to salvage what he can from the disaster that's happened. So that's the second point of the triangle. The third point of the triangle is uh, Nick, who is very laid back, very easygoing, very good-looking, Really hasn't had a trouble hasn't had trouble getting boyfriends or sexual partners or anything like that, and uh, he finds himself getting drawn to you know sort of the one person who kind of doesn't really like him, kind of sort of sees him for who he is, which is sort of you know kind of a not not a very not a very serious guy. Um, those, you know those are the two main characters. His character, in a sense, is the character I kind of thought of the first. Um, he, uh, his inspiration actually comes from a, for me, comes from a Jane Austen novel. My first, uh, my first real love of literature came from reading uh, Mansfield Park by uh, Jane Austen, in which there is a very rakish, good-looking, rakish character. Mm-hmm. Women fall all over him, and he, what does he do? He finds up, uh, finds himself getting intrigued by and drawn into, you know, attracted to the one person he can't really have, and that's what he wants. And there's something very, you know, shallow and selfish about it. Um, so that really, you know, inspired that character. What role does the ocean play in your novel? Well, the ocean, I, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I will say that the ocean, uh, the the ocean got the role in the novel when I actually went to Ocean Beach to, you know, write that scene, looking out on the ocean and thinking, you know, what what a nice metaphor it is for what I'm trying to write here, which is, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's very beautiful, but then it's also very large and it's also very dangerous and you don't know where it's going to take you. And I saw it as sort of a metaphor for life that, um, for the life that I was trying to, to get down into words in, in that book. And, uh, you know, all I'll just say is that the ocean can be a very inspiring thing for art. Your book has some very intense scenes as well. Yes, yes, and I'm very happy to say I never lived any of those scenes, so I'm thankful for that. So essentially what I did was, it, it's the, the book uh, in, its in, in its initial uh, drafts was a little on the bland side, and as I kept rewriting, 
just sort of uh, crank up the intensity and finally uh, got myself out of my uh, my comfort zone in, in the writing process to sort of write about the sorts of things that I don't think I put, I, I, that I know for a fact that I personally would never do and I hope to heaven uh, never have to go through and I hope to have no, no one else ever has to go through um, in, in that book. That's all I'll say about that. Just uh, one more question, Chris. Uh-huh. Which character would you say you feel closest to, emotionally closest to? Emotionally closest to? You know, that is a hard one to say. You know, the three main characters, I lent, actually, I lent a lot of myself to all the characters. Um, you know, as an artist, I suppose I would, you know, find, find myself emotionally close to Peter. You know, sort of his, his journey as an artist uh, is very similar to my journey as a writer. Um, for Miles, uh, you know, his, his, his anger, his frustration, uh, that's certainly a part that was uh, fortunately not, not so much uh, these days, but definitely a part of this, this feeling that you're sort of shut out from the world um, is definitely one that I've experienced. And it's a very kind of terrifying experience when you're actually in, you know, among other gay people and, fe- and feeling that way. That really is very terrifying. And then in Nick's case, you know, I don't know what to say. Nick... Um, uh, you know, in his case, as it happens after all the after all the rewriting, Nick's character is actually biographically comes the closest to my own. He's of Greek descent. He's he's born in Boston. He's the last of four kids. Um, you know, uh, I he's not I you know he's not a character I, I particularly care for. But I will leave it to my readers to decide uh, just how much uh, I resemble that character. We've been listening to Chris Deliani. He is the author of his book, You Are Here. Chris, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it, well, pretty much anywhere. If you type my name in, uh, type uh, Chris Deliani into uh, the Google search engine, you should, you should be able to find it on Google eBooks, Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Nobles and, of course, on iUniverse. Thanks for being with us, Chris, on iUniverse Radio. All right. Thank you, Steve iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.